0: Hello again. I'm Eric with Smart Pot Fabric Planners, back with another great episode of the Growing Revolution Smart Podcast. And the topic that I wanted to cover today was fertilizer labeling laws, misconceptions, and myths. And who better to help us understand this topic than Dr. Earth himself, Milo Seamus? Milo, welcome back to the podcast.
1: Pleasure to be here. Thank you.
0: Yeah, thanks for making time. Um, So my first question is, uh, what ratio of NPK uh, is best for the average veggie grower out there? And, um, you know, what numbers should we look for in either a liquid fertilizer or a dry granular fertilizer?
1: Yeah, that's a great question, um, Eric. And I think it's much more relevant when we look at uh, synthetic products because, and that takes us to a whole different discussion but when you're dealing with synthetic uh, fertilizers and 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 npk uh typically earlier in the season you'd want to have a higher N number to stimulate the vegetative growth and uh, a lower nitrogen number and more of a phosphorus number more of the p number the middle number uh when you get into uh, the flowering or the budding stage of a plant and that's true whether you're growing uh, tomatoes um Fruit trees or, or anything else or cannabis, anything you 're growing they 're going to require you know plants are plants eric, and when they 're in a nitri- uh, you know, vegetative state, the uh, vegetation state I should say they want more nitrogen to stimulate the green uh, growth, and uh, when the lights you know uh, dim literally and metaphorically when you go into the uh, summer sol- summer solstice and then the daylight hours uh, minimize or lower lessen, I should say. Um, you want a lot less nitrogen. But the way to do that is to kind of taper into it. I mean, it's not like there's a, it is a magic day where, you know, obviously there's more daylight than, than than dark. That is a factual number, but in nature, you kind of taper up to that and, you know, taper down from it. And so I don't like to see people go by the calendar and say, well, the plants in the vegetative, uh, you know, uh, growth pattern right now, and I should feed it heavy nitrogen, but On on the 22nd, when we go through the stulces, I'm going to eliminate that altogether and I'm going to go pure phosphorus. And the reason why I bring that up is because in nature, it doesn't quite work like that. I mean, the the, the leaves falling, that happens for a reason because that, you know, as those leaves decompose in the soil, they're going to release that nitrogen naturally. So you kind of want to mimic what's happening in the environment you live in. So if you're gardening in Hawaii, it's really different than if you're gardening in Michigan. You're, um, you know, just because you have a hard day and uh, daylight hours lessen a factual number, it doesn't mean you should behave like the guy that's gardening in in Hawaii because he doesn't have that same um, uh, complexity of uh, daylight hours and NPK importance. He can really taper throughout the whole season. Now, let's talk about the guy growing in Michigan, where it really does matter because it's going to get colder and you do see a drastic response from plants because obviously it's not just the the daylight hours, but it's also uh, the temperatures. And plants are going to respond to two things. They're going to respond to the hours and they're going to respond to the temperatures and they're going to respond to both simultaneously. So if you do live in Michigan, hypothetically, I'm going to use that because that's the extreme that, you know, we tend to look at in, uh, you know, northern, uh, northern America. But if you do live there, I mean, you should start using, you know, let's say hypothetically, early in the season, my Michigan friends, uh, you know, the fr- uh, frost is broken. They've just transplanted the rose. Well, they're going to want to focus on two things, little, you know, phosphorus because roots need the phosphorus and a little, a lot more nitrogen to really stimulate that vegetative growth and to get it out of, uh, you know, its uh, dormancy. Um, But as we head into that summer solstice and uh, we're heading into those lower daylight hours, we don't want to give it the same exact amount of nitrogen from the time it breaks dormancy until we hit, um, you know, fall. It's just not natural. So what you'd want to do is you kind of look around and say, well, it's getting cooler. Yes, I know the daylight hours are still, they haven't lowered yet. But it's getting cooler and I can feel fall coming on. If you can feel it, so can your plants. And you need to respond accordingly because your plants will. Now, plants don't typically respond overnight. Plants usually take two to three weeks to kind of, uh, you know, biologically just, uh, you know, understand what's happening to them. And that's why I say temperature is the other really critical element in this whole equation when you look at NPK. Um, and just keep your eyes on that. I mean, if uh, then you'd want, you'd want to definitely cut back on the nitrogen because they're not going to need it nearly as much, but plants are always going to need nitrogen because it's required for photosynthesis, uh, tissue building. It's really an important element. It's a, it's a macro nutrient. So you can't just say, well, all I want to do is give it phosphorus and, uh, and potassium and, um, and calcium. I mean, the majority probably, but that doesn't mean nitrogen just goes away. But what that would mean is let's say as you're heading into that, you know, summer solstice, and the daylight hours are going to lower, you may want to go into a triple, like an all-purpose product as you transition before you get into like a, a budding or a blooming or a flowering product. And there's, a, you know, an array of them. And let's use 555, for example, as like a baseline. Um, we make uh, both the 555 and our all-purpose fertilizers of 444, equal parts NPK, nitrogen, phosphorus, potassium. Now, we were talking about a vegetable gardener. When, you know, when I would recommend something dry or liquid to our gardeners, I would recommend our vegetable uh, fertilizer product. And that would tend to have a higher number earlier in the season. Now, as we're heading into that summer solstice and we're going to taper into uh, flowering, you'd want to use the vegetable fertilizer, but even though it's a vegetable, you're going to want to start to cater to something more with a higher phosphorus, as we discussed, more of a flowering and uh, and a blooming fertilizer. But in between time, you'd want to probably go towards an all-purpose, a 444, for example. And being, uh, you know, that being said is that they're going to still get the uh, the the nitrogen they need. Uh, They're going to have enough phosphorus to help them taper into that time period. And and obviously potassium is the all around, uh, you know, just uh, for strength and, uh, you know, just cell construction and everything else. It's just, uh, you know, a really primary macronutrient that is hard to overdo. Um, And then use something like that. And then as you're a month into the stolsus and clearly leaves are dropping all around with the exception of maybe your, um, you know, whatever uh, plant you're focusing on, they're going into flower, like your tomatoes all of a sudden. They're going from a green color to to a reddish color. And, yes, they're going to they're gonna definitely benefit more from phosphorus, because you will, uh, for flavor and, and ripeness and, uh, you know, all these sorts of things that we, uh, you know, we admire and we aspire to achieve as a gardener. And less nitrogen. I mean, leaves are not nearly as important to us later in the year because they've done their job for us. I mean, you know, the leaf is really uh, is a photosynth- uh, photosynthesis factory if you think about it. So why do we want to give it a lot of nitrogen early in the season? We want the leaves big and we want their ability to convert that nitrogen as a protein, as a tissue builder, so that it can help to big, uh, build bigger and better buds and blooms and ultimately fruits and vegetables. And the way you would do that is you need bigger green leaves early in the season, thus the more nitrogen early on. But then later in the season, as the fruit and vegetables are already set in place, And uh, you don't need nearly as much nitrogen. So you don't need to feed the green part of the plant, the foliage, you've done your job already. It's produced the buds and the blooms and the fruits and flowers, it can produce. There's nothing you can do magically uh, in the second part of the year, regardless of what fertilizer you're using. I'd love to tell you that Dr. Earth can, you know, magically, you know, uh, the second half of the year, if you use our, uh, you know, our, our bud and bloom booster, for example, that's an extreme phosphorus product. You know, uh, materialize thousands uh, more, uh, you know, uh, buds and blooms and flowers. It just doesn't work like that. If the plant itself hasn't developed those buds and those fruits and, and vegetables early on, it's not going to do it on the second part of the year. What could happen is what's existing could potentially take on a much larger size, flavor, robustness, and, and a health uh, variable. And that's why, yes, the numbers do matter. Much more so if you're a synthetic uh, chemical user, because you really do have to watch the numbers so carefully. And if you use the numbers inaccurately, uh, you know, uh, depending on the environment you live in, you know, if you live in San Diego, totally different thing. The environment's going to be much more forgiving than if you lived in upstate New York. You really have to watch the math and the numbers much more carefully, or especially where you live in Florida. I mean, you guys are a year-round gardening state, but you still have your stoltis. I mean, the sunlight hour is going to lessen no matter what. And tomato plants, even in determinate varieties, are eventually going to say, hey, you know what, it's kind of time to like, put out these fruits and vegetables. It's their own survival mechanism. Yeah. I mean, fruits and vegetables are there for a reason. It's to produce more seeds in that fruit and vegetable so yeah. that the plant can sustain itself and keep going on for future generations. So, But if you're an organic gardener, you live by a different um, uh, mantra. You live by a different style because you're not really feeding the plant in NPK you become much more the person that feeds the soil.
0: Right.
1: Um, You know, whether it's more protein, which would really, you know, break down to a uh, nitrogen later in the year. And you know, what does that mean? Well, you know, proteinaceous materials, let's say fish meal, fish is a pure protein, but ultimately as it's decomposed by soil microbes, it's going to be converted to 100% nitrogen. Makes sense. So you'd want to give the plant or the soil proteins early in the season, and then you'd probably want to give them less protein and more of your bone material in the latter part of the season. And that breaks down to phosphorus and calcium, which is what uh, the uh, pea part of the uh, synthetic pro- uh, product is really trying to mimic. So if you're an organic gardener using Dr. Earth or any other product, you just have to, you don't need to know nearly as much. I mean, you know, you, you can kind of toss out the chemistry lesson because you don't need it the plant takes care of itself simply because you have a healthy soil that knows how to break the nutrients down as the plant roots need them. And the really cool thing about being an organic gardener and, and having a great living soil and uh, you know something that's really rich in probiotics, uh, you know everything I've been touting for the last uh, 30 plus years, is that the microbes that are breaking the organic materials down in the soil, they tend to do exactly what the plant is doing because the microbes are also nutrient, I'm sorry, uh, temperature sensitive. So they're gonna be much more active and they're gonna break down a lot more material, whether a protein or or, or a bone material, early in the season. As temperature warms, they're more active, they're multiplying more, they're breaking down more materials. So therefore they're making more nutrients available, bioavailable for the plant roots to absorb. As the temperature drops, not only does your plant know that, hey, I don't need quite as much nutrition at this point, especially the nitrogen. But guess what happens? Microbes also slow down, and they break down less nutrients. So therefore, you end up with a nutrient reserve in the soil. And you don't have to be a chemist or a a microbiologist to understand that, because the microbes do the understanding for you. And that's the really neat thing. And a big part of being a chemical gardener or um, a gardener that uses um, uh, synthetic NPKs Um, versus an organic gardener who doesn't really get the NPK right quite often. And it's okay. It's really fine. I mean, if you did nothing but use a triple four year round, you would have great results because the microbes would break down the nitrogen when it's needed, the phosphorus as it's needed, and potassium is always broken down, which is always needed. Um, And keep another thing in mind too, Eric. There is no such thing in nature as triple 20. It just doesn't exist. I mean, I know people call me all the time, hey, compare your products uh, with the, this triple twenty that I have, or a triple thirty, or a thirty-five ten, and then the first answer is, I, you know, I have is that well, these things just don't exist in nature. There's right. no such thing as thirty percent nitrogen in nature. It doesn't exist. You'd have a flammable, uh, flammable globe. I mean, the whole world would become uh, combustible. So you don't have that problem. And um, and the other part of it is, the majority of that thirty percent nitrogen isn't absorbed by plant roots. So what happens to water-soluble nitrogen? It's going to end up in the waterways, it's going to end up polluting the rivers, the streams, and ultimately our oceans. And so if people want to be good stewards, not just to their garden and the safety of their home and children and pets, but if they want to be good stewards to the environment, using unnatural numbers will usually lead to unnatural consequences, which is usually a surplus of these nutrients. Intended to do good things, but the net result more than often tends to be a negative result So, you know, NPK is important um, and if somebody wants to use synthetic NPKs, that's great Try to go for the lowest numbers that you can because you're probably gonna, you know, get your money's worth That's number one. If you're paying for 30% nitrogen and uh, we've, we've done extensive studies on this. I mean, years ago, it's been a long time since I've had to prove, you know, a chemical versus an organic. This was like, you know, that, that was like a big challenge for me, as you can imagine, when I first launched the company, because that's what people were focusing on. Hold on a second. The numbers are really low here. When the numbers here are triple 30, I'm getting more of my, my money's worth. Boy, that makes, you know, kind of seems like a common sense uh, question. But if you think about it, there is no way in the world If you apply 30% nitrogen or even 100% nitrogen, that your plants are going to absorb anywhere near that amount of nitrogen. And the amount that we found in a water-soluble product, the most that they can absorb on a perfectly hot and warm day where the plants on their own are seeking that nitrogen to build more uh, green foliage is around 5%. And that's, you know, that's even in slower moving soils. Now, if you have really porous soils, which you should have, fast draining soils, I mean, you can get into like the 1% or 2% nitrogen. So what happened to the other 28%? You just spent a lot of money for 30%. You may have gotten 1% to 2 5% at best, let's say. And then the rest becomes uh, an environmental hazard for you, your family, and for, uh, for the globe. So, I mean, for that reason, I say the numbers are important. Um, more so if you 're a synthetic gardener than uh, if you 're an organic gardener
0: yeah i I just love your answer there there 's so many, so much good information uh, in that answer there um, Thank you. and I totally agree now, besides uh, nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium, what would be the next two or three most important elements for optimal plant health?
1: Calcium is a big one because that tends to give um, The uh, the cells the strength that they need. It also uh, really participates in in phosphorus absorption and um, uh, cell division. It's a really important uh, element. It also helps to prevent a lot of the fungal diseases uh, like uh, blossom end rot. You know, you'd really want to make sure you have ample amounts of uh, calcium. Um, Sulfur is always a very needed uh, ingredient, and uh, magnesium. These tend to be you know the, the you know nitrogen phosphorus potassium and those are the three tend to be the big macros that you can buy besides um you know what's free in the air uh, with uh, with uh, with water and oxygen those are the the three that you'd really need hydrogen oxygen and uh, and uh, gosh hydrogen oxygen carbon that was so easy it, was, it seemed hard um <laughs> but
0: yeah. 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 Um, I think, yeah. uh, uh, calcium almost should be like the, the fourth number on, uh, on NPK, uh, because, you know, I, I have very, um, very soft water, uh, where I'm at with almost no calcium and I have to add a lot of calcium. Otherwise I see, uh, tons of blossom and rot on my tomatoes. So I'm all for that. Yeah. Yeah. You know,
1: also they. Uh, I think most gardeners tend to forget about the pH, and pH is one of the most critical things that we gardeners really need to pay attention to. And the reason being is that you may have a plethora of nutrients already existing in the soil, but the pH will determine their solubility. So, if the pH isn't within that, you know, that optimal range we all talk about, which is you know between six and seven. You know, I always tell people, if you can have like a, just keep your garden at about 6.4 to 6.7 a pH, most nutrients will be bioavailable and you'll get everything that's, you know, available in the soil to your plants. Um, So watch the pH. And that can be really, uh, that can be, you know, uh, that can be had very easily with an inexpensive pH meter at your Mm -hmm. local garden center. You know, just spend $10, but that $10 can save you um, nights of headaches of why aren't my plants growing? I've done everything. I'm watering it. It's in sun. I'm giving it all the fertilizers I thought I'd, I'm supposed to, and the fertilizers are probably there, but they're probably locked up in an insoluble form. Um, so watch the pH because a lot of times you do have, especially phosphorus. Phosphorus is a very ubiquitous and abundant nutrient. If the pH isn't right, it's going to be locked up. Either way, if it's a, the pH is too low or too uh, too high, phosphorus just gets locked up and you know an iron phosphate and just all kinds of different uh, you know forms. It, Gets compounded very easily. But at a pH of um, 7, 7.2, um, um, phosphoric acid, the, the way you would see it on, on the label, uh, P2O5, gets, con- gets converted to PO4, which is orthophosphate. And uh, orthophosphate means, it's from the Latin, ortho, orthos, which means straight phosphate. And that's the most desirable source of uh, phosphorus you'd want to give your plants. And orthophosph- orthophosphate is most soluble at pH 7, too. So you could start out with a, with a soil medium that's slightly more acidic. But when you get into that blooming stage, you want to make your soil just slightly more alkali. And I don't mean alkali, but slightly more than your acidic stage later in, in the season during your uh, time of blossom to make sure that the phosphorus is available. Because that's what you you really need to build, those uh, blooms and buds and flowers and fruits and and vegetables and all the things that give you size and and taste and flavor and and abundance and, uh, you know, prevent all these uh, fungal and uh, pathogen diseases.
0: Nice, nice. Now, um, I have a question kind of relating to your products because the Dr. Earth products are... Beyond organic, is it more difficult to have consistency in NPK numbers because your inputs can vary slightly from batch to batch or is it pretty consistent?
1: Well, we by law, we have to be consistent. So what happens is, you know, when when we source materials, and I mean, standalone, let's use fish mail, for example. Um, when we source fish meal, we have to run that through the laboratory before we can blend it and make a blend of any sorts and make sure it has a certain nitrogen level. Because, you know, the time of year you catch the fish will determine the amount of protein, what the protein level is going to be. As you can imagine, there's times of year when the fish has been eating a lot of food and has a lot of fat reserve in it, which means that the nitrogen content is going to go down. Um, or the leaner years where it's just pure tissue, the nitrogen content will go up. So you really pay attention to that. But yeah, that's a great question. It will most definitely vary, but before we blend anything and we take it for face value of whatever, you know the, the fishing uh, supply houses uh, give us, we have to test everything and we will make adjustments before we make a blend. And, and you're right, it does vary. You know, nitrogen and, uh, and fish meal will vary between eight to 12% and that's a big spread. It's a huge spread. So we have to keep our eyes on it. We have to make sure it hits a certain percentage because if we have to add more during whatever blended product we're making, we'll make, we'll make that adjustment just pre-blend. So it really does vary, absolutely. And I don't think many people understand that, that they'll just think that, well, fish meals, fish meals, fish meal. That's not true. Fish right. meal is always fish meal. Well, I suppose it is always fish meal, but it's going to have a different nitrogen element, depending on the time of year that it was caught. You know, so it does vary and it does matter.
0: Yeah, that's super interesting. Um, So uh, what are some ingredients that you've seen, excuse me, in synthetic fertilizers that people should probably look to avoid?
1: Oh, gosh, Eric, I mean, I, you know, I'm, I'm almost the wrong person to ask because my answer is going to be all synthetics are probably something to stay away from it. And, you know, in my garden, I just, I, there's so many of them, you know, and I just think it comes down to, and the key difference is the synthetic materials, you know, they really feed the plant directly and uh, the byproducts just end up as pollutants in the soil. So, you know, I, I would personally, I think none of them are needed. I would much rather find my NPK and macro and, and trace elements from, you know, decomposing leaves as opposed to buying a, a synthetic uh, you know, product of any sort. So I would just simply say, I think they're all, um, they're not for me. Let's just put it that way. I have nothing negative to say about, you know, I understand people have to make products and, and do what they have to do. But just for me, personally speaking, um, I wouldn't use any of them. But that's a personal, uh, you know, answer.
0: That, that's a very Dr. Earth uh, answer. And I, I wouldn't expect uh, a- anything else from you. I, I love it. Um, so would you say that the states are doing a good job of monitoring the contents of fertilizers? And if there was anything that you would like to see the states do differently, what would that be, if anything?
1: You know, what I've always dreamt of is there would be a national law put in place, like a United States Department of Agriculture, to regulate fertilizer labels, like food labels are regulated, like beverage labels are regulated, like drug labels are regulated. When it comes to fertilizers, you know, I have to deal with 50 different states. And you can imagine I've invented, you know, over 500 products in my career, and 300 of them are currently registered, not in every single state. But in California, I've got over 150 products registered here and it's hard because i have to meet the requirements here then you go right next door to nevada and the laws completely change and then by the time we're on the east coast the laws have completely changed and so you have these nuances for with different departments of agriculture some states are very relaxed as long as you pay your bill and you tell them you know what's in the label and it's accurately in the label cuz you know i'm sure they do their own independent uh, testing um, it's fine, but you know, that's what I've always, uh, you know, I've always dreamt of it was like having one unified, uh, regulatory body that would force us all to comply to the same sets of, uh, rules and regulations, um, in terms of like, what are the states doing that I'd like to see them change? You know, there's some ingredients I think, and it's not just so much the states, but I even think like, uh, you know, certified organic agencies, I think they let a lot of things go that are questionable. Um, you know, I'm not going to name ingredients. I know people have to make a living out there. But there's just certain things I don't think have place in the, um, in the world of organics. I think there's – I mean, I think when you deal with organics, I don't think it's always the ingredients. I think there's the humane element. I think, you know, people have to look at, well, how is that ingredient sourced? I mean, did an animal have to suffer in order for me to get this ingredient? And I think that has a huge place in, um, in organics. And I think you'll notice that most organic consumers – tend to be acutely aware of where their ingredients are coming from. And um, so that's one thing I think I'd like to see the states take a look at, although that's probably not going to happen because these byproducts have to go someplace and the states have to allow these growers of different foods to let their byproducts go someplace as opposed to taking it to the landfill. And that I agree with because I don't think you know, we take these uh, waste materials and um, and we should throw them away or or put them in landfills. I think that's wrong too. Um, But then to allow companies to sell certified organic products that I think may have questionable sources or may have come from a questionable source and then allow these manufacturers to take waste materials and sometimes toxic waste materials And then the third party agencies allow them to certify it as organic and then sell it to consumers that don't know the difference like you and I do. I mean, I live in this world. All I do is I study ingredients and labels and and fertilizers and soils. And that's my world. That's what I do seven days a week, you know, uh, from morning to night. It's all I think about. It's who I am. It's my entire tale of some life is understanding these things and bringing them to, uh, to the marketplace. But I think there's a lot of people that take advantage of, um, you know, uh, not foolish consumers, but naive consumers that don't have the time and energy. They just, I mean, who should, I mean, you know, I trust cars because I trust the brand, but should I know how a starter works? I mean, it's not my job to know where the ignition point is or what the capacity of keep it sending me. It's not my job. I just know that I trust the brand. I know the car works. It's a safe vehicle. I and mean, really that's all I should know as a consumer. Now of course there's guys that love cars and they love to study that and they read every label and I can tell you every different manufacturer every part what it does. I can't. It's not my. I'm not interested in that. Um, I think the same exact thing happens with gardeners. I think there's people like you and I that have you know immersed themselves in the in the category and and, and we do know better and we do know where things come from and we do know what the net result is. Um, and I think states you know have an obligation to do a certain amount of um, research and help, uh, you know, to us consumers. And I think that's where it gets to be dicey and iffy. And and I think they should police labels a little more uh, aggressively with more scrutiny. And, um, you know, and I think what those ingredients are, I think most people know what they are. I mean, I'm not going to sit here and, uh, you know, throw uh, different manufacturers um, under the bus and say what they're doing is bad. I just think the law exists. I think there's a lot of manufacturers taking advantage of the law, taking advantage of uh, naive and ignorant uh, consumers, and they're throwing certified organic on the label, and they're charging them a premium. They're charging them a fortune for these ingredients that they're probably buying for a penny or two a pound, and they're able to sell it for a dollar a pound. And You can imagine that kind of a delta, and that's where I think it's unfair. And I think that's where the state should really have more input. And, and crack down on those manufacturers.
0: Yeah, I, you know, it is interesting that, you know, we have kind of a, an FDA, you know, approved label for food products that is, is standardized, you know, across the industry. Uh, but yet, yeah, for fertilizers, it's it's up to each state. Um, so I, I'm kind of with you. I, I would like to see a national standard uh, for labeling. It makes sense. Yeah. Um, so, what the plants take out, um, we need to put back into the soil. Uh, what would you recommend from the doctor. Earth lineup to the average smart pot grower who's into you know tomatoes, cucumbers, herbs to recharge your soil? You kind of touched on it a little bit earlier, but um you know, is there you know, I guess if there was like one product you know that you would recommend, would it be something like you know a four four four? That kind of, you know, works with all plants kind of during all phases of the season?
1: That's the easiest way to go. I mean, I think if you uh, apply a triple four, I think you've pretty much covered everything. Because in all of our products, it's not just the NPK, even though we don't claim it. I mean, all of our products are very rich in calcium. I mean, this is like something that just because we claim it in in our tomato and vegetable fertilizer... I've noticed on a lot of the different blogs and a lot of the different uh, you know social platforms that one go, uh, grower will say, hey, use their uh, homegrown uh, fertilizer. It contains calcium. But really, if you think about it, the calcium is coming from the fish bone meal that we're using, even though I don't claim calcium on an all-purpose fertilizer or a, um, or a starter fertilizer or a, uh, or, a f- uh, or a fruit tree fertilizer the nutrients are coming from the same source. I'm not taking extra calcium in my homegrown product and sprinkling it in there. The calcium is inherent to the raw ingredient, which is the fish bone meal, the phosphorus and the calcium. So we don't claim it, but it's there. So, you know, really when you look at what product, if they, you know, if you, I suppose if you narrowed it down to just one product, that's all you had access to then sure I would use an all purpose product to replenish the soil because it's going to give you everything you're looking for. But then I'd be careful with that thinking, because let's just say, hypothetically, if you've grown your garden and now the soil is fallow and you've uh, depleted all the nutrients in it, but you want to rebuild that soil for you know the, the next uh, crop, unless you're going to plant in it right away, I would probably use more of a, a bud and bloom booster. And you're thinking, well, hold on a second, that's contradictory. Hold on. We just harvested everything. Shouldn't we be putting more nitrogen in it? If you're planting right away, Yes. Now, why wouldn't I, if I was just allowing the soil to sit fallow? It's because nitrogen is the most volatile ingredient. And if it's going to be digested and broken down and a plant is going to absorb it, it's going to wash, this, uh, wash through the soil. So if you're planting right away, use something with nitrogen in it. If you're not, and you just want to rebuild the soil for its macro and micronutrients, then I would go with something that has more, uh, more phosphorus in it and less nitrogen. And if you're a rose and flower grower, use the rose and flower uh, product. If you're a fruit tree grower, use the fruit tree product for that reason. But if you're planting right away, then it's totally fine because of that one element. And remember, it's still coming from, uh, you may think, well, Milo, it's still coming from protein. It's still coming from tissue. That's true. But eventually, when that tissue is digested by soil microbes, that, that nitrogen is going to become soluble in the soil and whether you're watering that soil or not it's going to rain and eventually that nitrogen is going to travel through the soil profile even in a, in a, in a smart pot eventually it's going to wash you through, the, through the bottom you guys design your pots for a reason they drain because they're supposed to drain otherwise you've got you know pathogens that are going to destroy everything um and especially your pots because they're breathable pots so you've got extra biological activity than you do in plastic containers or redwood containers or uh, or porcelain containers, you've got this porosity happening 365 degrees around the plant, top, bottom, and the sides. So you typically, in your containers, would tend to have much more biological activity. So if you're applying something with more um, nitrogen and you don't don't plan on gardening right away, that that protein is going to break down into that nitrogen, and that nitrogen will be soluble. And if you're not planting, you're going to lose the nitrogen, which means that when you do put a plant in next year, if you're not planting right away, you've probably lost a good part of the nitrogen. But the phosphorus and calcium will still be there for you. And then you may have an imbalance because you may come back in and put the same exact ingredient. Now you'll have an excessive amount of phosphorus and calcium. Whereas if you didn't do anything at all and waited to re-amend the soil for a later period with nitrogen because the plant will use it. Now again, if you do want to just build the soil and allow the biology and the chemistry and, and everything else to happen in the soil while you're waiting to plant, whether it could, it could be a month or six months, um, use less nitrogen, use more phosphorus, and we make a host of products depending on the category you're growing. Uh, and if you're uh, if you're uh, if you're a cannabis grower, you probably want to gravitate towards a uh, flower grow, our bud and bloom booster. If you're a um, even if you're a rose grower, you can use a rose uh, product, a rose and flower product, because it has a higher uh, N. I'm sorry, a higher P number, a higher phosphorus number. But vegetable gardening, same exact uh, thing. Let's say you've uh, harvested the entire vegetable garden, and uh, the NPK tends to be higher in phosphorus, anyways. You can use that because that nitrogen element will wash away a good part of it. Um, here's there's, there's a small caveat to that. Depending on the time of year, you've added the the organic fertilizer with nitrogen in it. Remember what I said earlier was the microbes will respond to the uh, to the air temperature and the soil temperature more more uh, specifically. Now, as it cools down, if you've added a a proteinaceous material, let's say like pure fish meal, um, would it just sit there? In theory, a good part of it will, even if it's rainy. The reason being is that if you put like a flake, a fish bone flake or a fish flake in the soil, if the temperature is too cold, the fish flake will just become a physical part of the soil makeup. It's not going to act as a fertilizer element until the environmental conditions permit, which means more biological activity. So if you can imagine this being like a little uh, flake of uh, fish meal and you have an abundance of microbes around it. As temperature cools, it doesn't matter how many microbes you have around it. If they're all uh, dormant or in stasis or they're, they're not active, that fish particle will just sit there until the environmental conditions permit again, which means that they break dormancy. That typically happens at 54 degrees soil temperature, most active at 81 to 84 degrees soil temperature, and break the material down and provide it for the plants to absorb. The nice thing is you're typically gardening and your roots are typically active exactly when the microbial activity is happening. So if you added an organic product to the soil the wrong time of year, there is no wrong time, but the wrong time of year for the plant, it doesn't wash away like a synthetic product. It doesn't matter. It's gonna wash away whether you put it in winter or whether you put it in the middle of summer, whether there's a plant there or not, all of it's gonna wash away. So, you know, there's a lot of environmental reasons to be an organic gardener, not just getting your money's worth and making sure your plants get the maximum benefit of your efforts. But because, you know, it's, it's going to wash away and it's not going to be there and it's going to typically pollute the, uh, the waterways and, uh, and the environment.
0: Yeah, that makes perfect sense. Now, uh, switching gears, kind of getting into uh, pest and disease control. Um, what ingredients on those products should organic gardeners be looking for um, versus like what would be in a chemical, um, you know, pest and disease control product?
1: That's a great question. You know, I was one of the first, maybe the very first, that had uh, a complete line of certified organic insecticides. And most people don't know Dr. Earth for that, but I invented a line of uh, insecticides in um, in 1996 and brought them to market in 1998 that were essential oil-based. We used five different essential oils, just a variety of them, uh, mint, uh, peppermint, uh, clove, uh, rosemary, thyme, um, and we put them through uh, a, a micronizer to blend them together. So they're really soluble. And, uh, they're, they're very effective. And But what I also do is I was the first one to use garlic oil and compound them with certified organic essential oils. So we're the only ones that use garlic and essential oils certified and have a complete national program. And you can find all of our products at uh, most uh, nurseries uh, nationwide. Besides the big box stores, they're available at all the great independent nurseries as well. Um, and the way they work is they, they suffocate uh, the insects. But so, do, so does a vegetable oil. You, but you wouldn't want to take a vegetable oil and, sp- and spray your garden with it. Um, they also work by killing the, um, the neurotransmitters uh, inside of an insect's brain. So, like, you know, the way insects work is they have uh, neurotransmitters, uh, and the part that is supposed to receive it is called the neuroreceptor. So, what happens is that electron that's being fired off by their brain gets corrupted. Just imagine, like, having a bad computer. The essential oils corrupt the signal from their brain to their feet or to their wings or to their legs, more specifically to their stomach. So what happens is even though they're eating something, the signal that tells them, digest it, chew it, it's corrupted. So they keep eating and eventually they'll just die in in a couple of days. Now, what I like to do is instead of killing the insect, I like to uh, control them. And that's why our insecticides are highly superior because of the garlic extract. And The garlic that, that, that we use is totally, it doesn't smell like garlic. It's, it's, it's an invisible smell. Um, but what it does is it fools the insects. And that's more important to me than killing them. Because if they land on a plant, they may visually see, oh, there's a tomato plant. It's my host. I'm going to attack it. It lands on it. But when it lands on it, everything's telling it, hold on a second. I'm on a tomato plant. Why don't I want to eat this? Because it's giving off the odor of garlic. And garlic is not a host plant. I'm not sure if you've ever looked at a garlic plant. No one uses insecticides when growing garlic plants. They just, or like rosemary plants or sage plants, they don't usually have a whole lot of uh, you know, um, insects that attack them. So if we can cover the garden with these beautiful essential oils that are micronized with a compound, or compounded micronized with uh, with garlic oils, The plant smells totally different. So when an insect lands on them or crawls on them, they think, oh, wrong plant, got to keep going on. And most of the time, they'll just end up flying to your neighbor's garden or to another plant that may not need an insecticide or just crawl away. And if you can control them, you've mastered the art of organic gardening. That is true zen. Making sure they never attack in the first place. People that garden synthetically always have a problem. And that's when they end up at the nursery and they say, I have a problem, what is it? The entire garden's been just being destroyed by insects. Well, the ecosystem was off. There was an imbalance in the ecosystem. And that usually starts with the soil. The plant is giving off uh, the wrong signals, like, hey, I'm distressed, I'm sick, I'm easy, I'm an easy target. Um, So it definitely starts in the soil. And if you're an organic gardener, you'll typically, you'll notice that most organic gardeners have a lot less insect problems. Because the, the uh, cell wall, the cellulose and the lignin uh, part of the cell tends to be much thicker because they, the cell itself developed much more slowly. So it has more time to build these compounds, the cellulose and the lignin compounds. So the, the, um, the plant cell wall itself is much thicker. So just imagine this, uh, this analogy. Um, what would you rather eat? You can eat both. Would you rather eat a, a head of butter lettuce or would you rather eat the side of a tree bark? They both contain, uh, but that's that's the way. But that's exactly what it's like for the for the insects. They're want to go. They're going to want to go for that soft, tender tissue, and most of the time, that soft, tender tissue is brought on by synthetic fertilizers. Why? Because it you know it stimulates them artificially. So you have these multiple cells, very fast growing cells, with very thin wallets. So an insect will look and say, "Oh, there's a buffet. There's a feast waiting there for me," and then, and it will attack it because it's an easy, it's a really soft meal for it. And that's why you'll notice like in, um, you know, in, uh, in, the, in the grape regions, the first thing that they're gonna attack is gonna be that tender growth. They've been artificially stimulated, the buds are breaking, roses are notorious for this. A lot of people, a lot of rosarians, you know, when they break their dormancy, will give it a, just a, a ton of nitrogen to, uh, to get those uh, shoots to grow. But at the same time, they've invited all the insects because everything's tender and soft and and really just smooth and and delicate. Mm -hmm. Now, if you're an organic gardener, you tend to have thicker um, cell walls, which is more like bark. I mean, so insects, you know, very rarely will you see them attacking a bark, you know, the side of a tree. They're gonna wanna attack the tender growth growing on that tree, right? Same tree. The insect is there. Why aren't they attacking the bark? Well, that's the older woody part. That's the part that took years to build. As opposed to the uh, the uh, tender green part of the tree, it's the same exact thing in your vegetable garden, same exact thing, except the vegetable garden doesn't have the luxury of giving you a 30 year uh, test study you're usually growing the vegetable garden and you're getting to see the results within you know three to six months, depending on uh, you know whatever vegetable or fruit tree you 're growing so um, if you're an organic grower you'll tend to let have less of those problems, but let's just say you do have those problems. The way to deal with that with an organic insecticide, such as uh, our final stop, uh, insect killers, um, is we fool them. It, it's, a, it, it's a, we deceive them. And it's a, that's really what I like to call it. We deceive them, we fool them into thinking it's a totally different plant. So when it lands on your tomato plant and you've used our product, it smells like garlic. It smells like rosemary. And uh, it just totally deceives it. And it thinks I'm on the wrong plant, I need to leave. And you'll never have an attack in the yeah. first place. And if you can master that, that's when you know you've really reached that highest level of organic gardening.
0: Yeah, totally. Uh, I I love the saying "an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure." And you know, if you're just a really solid organic gardener, you know those bugs are not going to view those strong growth plants as an easy target. Uh, and if you do happen to have issues, um, I definitely like to lean towards essential oils. Uh, like you said, it you know kills, but then. Uh, I didn't know about the, uh, garlic I- ingredient in there. Um, and, uh, somebody told me once that, uh, spicy plants like onions and garlic are good for keeping snakes out of your yard because they don't like that smell. And it, you know, it just makes sense that other creatures like insects wouldn't like, you know, spicy stu- substances either. So, um, awesome. I uh always learn something new when I'm talking to Dr. Earth so I Thank you. I just love this conversation. So um if people want to hear more about, you know, your products and just your philosophy in general, definitely check out Dr. Earth's uh YouTube content. Um their website is uh doc- just com. correct?
1: Yes, just DR yeah. Earth.
0: So much good inf- information uh, that Milo's been churning out over the decades. And uh, again, we really appreciate him being a steward of the industry uh, overall. So thank you so much for your time today.
1: Thank you very much, Eric. Keep up the good work, guys. Thank you.
0: Thank you.